the diagnosis is wrong, or at least is not going in the right direction, you can have some real problems. Greg, we don't talk about digging it out. We talk about gentle extraction. Whenever there's a serious loss, the U.S. mentality is is somebody's got to pay for it. Where in the hell do you get slurred speech in Bell's palsy? You don't. You don't. You can't have it both ways. It is either a standard of care or it isn't. Did you say we're waiting for the radiologist to die? How many doctors do you think actually are willing to put their mouth where their money is? Don't answer these difficult questions. Well, we're back with Risk Management Monthly. It's Greg Henry and Rick Bucata. Hi. We're sitting here in New Orleans giving a course, having a great time, and we're recording the June issue of Risk Management Monthly. And as all of our listeners know, the June issue, Rick, is our big double-disc issue in which we review the past year. Now, this is like the Ginsu Knives. We don't give you one disc. We give you two discs. Yes, this is a two-disc month, and we are going to summarize what we did in a year in 150 minutes. So we're obviously going to hit the highlights. And, you know, some people have said, I know this is difficult to understand, Greg, well, why are you doing this? I've already listened to the whole year. Well, the fact is we have new people coming on all the time. This will summarize. We've done four of these now, I think four yearly summaries. And repetition is the mother of invention. <laughs> no, I don't think <laughs> that's the phrase, Rick. But the bottom line is this. I think we get some reflection, too, when we look back at what we presented in those episodes, and we get to summarize them and bring them together. And those of you who are listening who are too cheap to have Everybody in your group get a subscription. Why don't you pass this around and make sure they at least hear the summaries of what's going on. So, without further ado, take us back, Rick, to July 2010. What happened in the July issue? Well, I think that we focused in that issue on imaging. Imaging was the theme. You know, each issue does have a theme of sorts. and does, uh, sort of. More or less. And this was the imaging issue. So I'm going to talk a little bit about the first thing, which was the CT of the abdomen in patients with abdominal pain. And the key points we want you to remember here is that the sensitivity of CT is determined to a large extent by the quality of the reader. We have some nice papers in the EMA database that compared resident readers versus community doctor readers and basically the experts, and there is clearly a difference. And you need to remember that a lot of these papers on abdominal CTs are from academic centers where these guys are kind of the pros. So you have to be a little bit careful in terms of what your local docs are capable of doing. One of the things we ran into is the idea of contrast. <laughs> you know, yeah. Now, from a medical legal point of view, this is irrelevant. The literature says IV and PO contrast are unnecessary, and you're just going to have to keep on arm wrestling your radiologist here regarding the patients who have appendicitis. But I should tell you, remember, Greg, we've got this letter that Mo McCullough, who's on faculty at USC, was able to get out of the radiologist. That letter says at the University of Southern California Department of Emergency Medicine, all abdominal CTs will be done without any contrast, except if they expect the patient to have some kind of fistulous lesion, which is a really landmark breakthrough because obviously when a university takes a position like this, they've kind of thought it through and 
At least we hope they have. But in any case, it's a nice piece of information to use to help support this issue. Well, we've gone around about this for years, Rick, and the bottom line is as the older radiologists die off and the young guys come in, we're probably seeing a drop in the use of contrast. Hopefully, we're seeing a drop in the intensity of the radiation levels, too, in some of these cases, particularly with the kids. There's no reason to be shooting full radiation CT scans of the abdomen on children. That's just a waste <laughs> of time. Did you say we're waiting for the radiologist to die? Well, the old Did ones to die it? off, okay, yes. I would think it's going to get done a lot faster than that, since most of them retire at around 45. <laughs> you know, the, the cycle is much more rapid than yeah. it is in emergency medicine. What can I say, Rick? I wanted to remind you that there is in the EMA database a 23-study meta-analysis that clearly concludes that, and this is the important phrase, that CT without contrast is at least as good as it is with contrast. One of the things you ought to remember is what kind of sensitivity can you expect for the CT in the appendicitis cases? And we're talking generally about 95%. Remember, this may be a little bit better than your local radiologist. Yeah, I think that when we say 95%, you've got to kind of put together the entire spectrum of people who are being scanned at that moment in time. And that takes everybody who you would just on a clinical basis call appendicitis at that moment. It's not just the subtle ones. One of the things also that studies have shown is that women under 45, they are the highest yield for CTs. Men and children, very low yield. Women under 45, because they've got so much going on in their lower abdomen, potentially, are the high yield cases. The other thing is the ultrasound first position that is so defendable, but which is not done in the United States. We've got paper after paper after paper that says you ought to ultrasound them. If it's positive, do surgery. If it's negative, send them home. If it's equivocal, do a CT. And our latest paper, our latest paper shows that in adults, six ultrasounds were done for every one CT in adults. And in children, 24 ultrasounds were done for every one <laughs> CT in kids. Since this is a risk management program, let's bring out the risk management point, which is even with a negative CT, even with a negative ultrasound, you have to look at the patient, heaven forbids, oh, come on. Look, look at them clinically, and at some point in time, you have to tell the parents or whoever it is, you know what, we may have to go in and operate. And they need to understand that in advance, that this, in the best of hands, with the best of people at the best of universities, there's going to be a 5 to 7% miss rate on a CT scan looking for the appendix. Now, if you're willing to put up with that, that's fine. That's pretty much what we have to do. But the clinical picture is if the patient has peritonitis or rebound and guarding, that sort of thing, sometimes they have to go in and operate, and they do find things. There you go. Greg, I think you're up for telling us about CTs for a headache. Oh, first of all, the movement to get CTs for headaches has gone crazy in this country. We're sitting around with stacks, piles, unbelievable collections of CTs which are negative. Why? Because we didn't know how to be selective for getting the CT. And the reason is simply there are two fallacies medically legally. The first one is a CT will pick up what I want to know and that will protect me from lawsuits. It couldn't be more wrong, Rick. We're not looking for the brain tumor. We're not looking for a foreign body inside the head. Pretty much when you do a CT 
on a sudden onset headache, you're looking for blood. Will it pick that up? It's okay, but it still is going to have a 3 to 5% miss rate. If the story is good, enough for you to get a CT, when that CT is negative, you got to tap them. There's Positive, been, not a problem. Been no change in that philosophy. Doesn't matter whether you have a 99 head, 2000 head CT machine, it's still basically the standard of care. When you look at my cases that I'm defending, going to court on, that is still one of the big five. They do CT and no LP. And I've heard the crying forever, shut up, stop it, when they say, well, doctor, I don't want an LP. The obvious discussion, which is, is the pain you want me to take away? Because you know what? I haven't done an LP in years without actually asking people, would you like me to make you blotto? And a little Verised through the vein or fentanyl, or I don't care which one you use. If you're a propofol person, that's fine too. But we can make it so that the procedure is painless. It's one of the safest procedures we do, and it's one of the few things in medicine where the answer is 100%. If you take that fluid out and look at it, when you're looking for meningitis, it's a yes or no question. It's there or it isn't. And the number of these negative kinds of taps or these questionable taps is actually very small. When it rolls back blood, you've got the diagnosis, and you really don't care what the CT scan showed. A negative CT scan, this is the point, does not rule out at a reasonable level the subarachnoid hemorrhage. And don't think you can substitute a CT angiogram looking for little aneurysms and that that's okay. It isn't the standard of care. You need to do the tap. Moving on. Okay. Plain films and back pain, they don't offer us very much. The thing that we're supposed to be looking for is red flags, infections and tumors and spinal cord compressions and vascular issues. And all of those, if you're interested in them, they're going to be showing up on your MRI, not your plain CT and certainly not plain back x-ray. So it's really important that you do the right study. And frankly... In mechanical low back pain, it doesn't really matter what you do. They're going to get better 90% of them within six weeks. You can give them PT or chiropractics or muscle relaxers. It doesn't matter. Ideas, do not miss the red flag cases. That's really all you need to know. Well, Rick, the way we start to get the red flag cases is two things. We do a history, and heaven forbid we do a physical. But there are things that when they come in don't fit together. Hello? I'm a drug shooter. By the way, I've got back pain. And a little fever. Ah, ah. See, I don't really care what the rest of the exam shows right now. I don't like the story at that moment in time. And it's one that it's very hard to defend in court. Let's say they've got a mechanical device, an artificial valve. Let's say they've had recent surgery. Let's say they've got cancer. There are all kinds of reasons why people get epidural abscesses. And I think we have to be a little bit sensitive to those kinds of histories. Epidural abscesses are increasing in frequency, uh, largely because a lot more diabetics, a lot more people on steroids, a lot more people who are immunocompromised, a lot more people have had mechanical things put into their body. And it doesn't have to be put into your back. It can be put anywhere else that anywhere can else. potentially see this infection. So these are going to be big money cases, and I think that it's the good point that you made, Greg, is there's this opportunity to be prejudiced against these people who are shooters or those kinds of things, thinking, ah, geez, they're just here for drugs, when in fact you could make a very wealthy shooter by missing these epidural abscesses. The other point that we have to make, Rick, is 
once you have reasonable historical suspicion, when they do that examination, I don't know why, why it escapes people that you shouldn't do the correct neurological examination. I don't care if you're looking at the pupils. I don't care if you're looking at their cranial nerves. But what I want is if you're going to examine the lower back, you actually have checked sensation. The end of the animal is not their feet. It's around their butt. And that's where you're going to find the decrease in sensation. The scrotal area, the buttocks area, around the rectum, that's where the problem is. And as soon as you look at one of those areas and there's decreased sensation, that isn't right. But I can't tell you the number of back pain charts that I review where nobody's ever done that part of the examination. I don't want to beat this drum too long and too hard, but I don't understand why we'd walk into a room with a back pain patient in 2011 and the patient would still have their shoes and socks and pants on and you think you're going to examine them correctly. You're not going to. Having been to court on these many times, the patient will actually tell you that. They never took my pants off. They never did this. They never did that. And you can't tell from the doctor's record. He says, sensation normal. What does that mean? I mean, it's obviously interpretive at that moment in time. And it's the worst when they've also got a family member who was in the room and document the fact, never saw me walk, never checked the toes going up or down, never looked to see if they could extend the extensor halluses longus. Those are the kind of things which if a neurosurgeon or an orthopedist were looking at this case, those would be on the chart. You got it. So keep in mind Sora, keep in mind Cauda Aquinas syndrome, looking for these neurological issues that make it clear that you have considered them in the chart. One other point, if you're going to do a study, and I think people who have been regular listeners of our stuff know that we are conservatives, we don't want to test anything. We don't think anything works, but if you're going to do a test, do the right test. A CT scan of the back doesn't show you what you want. If you're going to do a plain x-ray, I have no idea why. They're of historical interest only. If you really want to do a study, you're going to get an MRI, and you can get it supported with gadolinium or however you want to do that scan, whatever your protocol is at your hospital. But this is the case when you send the slip over to radiology. Tell them what you're looking for. Make sure your examination supports the levels at which you begin the study. I mean, if you're looking at somebody who's got lesions at T10, you better be shooting that study of the thoracic and the lower lumbar areas. Well, spinal epidural abscesses tend to be in the thoracic spine, and uh, one of the tip-offs, supposedly, is most of the back pain we have is in our neck and in our lumbar area. When you have mid-thoracic back pain, that's atypical. The other thing is feel along the spinous processes. There is a tip-off there, too. If you have pain on a spinous process, particularly in the thoracic area, you're considering spinal epidural abscesses. Moving on, Greg. Oh, let's get to the cervical spine while we're doing some imaging. I think that we've talked about this over the years, but it's pretty clear that when you've got grandma who's fallen out of bed and she's got neck pain, the study of choice here is the spiral CT of the neck. Not only does it pick up more fractures than plain films, but then it's going to be read by a radiologist online. There are still way too many of these films which are read by the emergency doc at night, and they kind of think they can read them again in the morning. See, I want to know what medical legal good it does you 
to get a note back the next day that says, oh, by the way, the reread shows a fracture at C6, C7. That, to me, is nothing but a smoking gun. If they're going to charge for looking at these studies, let's do it online. The other thing is, when we talk about missing things, most of us aren't radiologists. I want the radiologist with me, sitting next to me in the defendant's box if there's a problem, and having committed themselves to what that film says at that moment in time. Don't we have an issue here of a standard of care issue between plain films and CTs that is a little problematic because we know, frankly, from all the literature that CT is the far superior study. So the question is, when would it be appropriate to order a plain film? When would it be appropriate to order a CT? And this is kind of like dangerous territory we're coming into now, don't you think? Well, believe me, there are perfectly reasonable people and excellent physicians on both sides of this argument, and I've been in those arguments. My feeling is, why are we not getting the better test? Here are the arguments. It takes me longer to get it. Well, the funny thing is, doing a spiral CT of the neck is faster than getting three views of the neck. In the database, we have papers that show the amount of tech time required. The least amount of tech time is shooting a spiral CT of the neck. There's no question about that. If you look at the marginal cost of doing a study, after all, the CT machine's already paid for or you've got it sitting there, the amount of electricity required to run it for that study may be, what, 11 cents, something like that, and that study's been done as well. I think what we ought to think about is not the charge, but the true cost. Yes, but we're not really able to determine that right now. They like charging a lot of stuff for using that expensive machine. That would be great if they were equal, but they don't really seem to be. And obviously the idea is to use some criteria like Nexus or the Canadian C-spine rules, which will basically tell you whether you need an image or not. Now, those were focused on plain films. I understand. And we're talking about maybe if you need an X-ray, maybe you should be getting the CT. If you don't need it, you don't need anything. Well, as you remember, Rick, we just reviewed today a lot of that literature. Clearly, you can clinically clear without any danger at all probably two-thirds of the patient's who are injured come in kind of depends on whose study you look at but there's no question that there are still going to be high risk groups that we need to image let's take the case grandma's 85 a case from my series grandma's 85 she falls out of bed now she's got pain in her neck which study do you want if you're the doc working that night there's no question you want the ct scan well, plus you take that plain x-ray she's got 55,000 osteophytes there. There's yeah. an osteoporotic neck. There's some prior vertebral collapses. You don't know whether it's new or old kind of thing. Yes, absolutely. This is what's been suggested to me, is that we use the plain film as the social x-ray. Yeah. Well, believe me, there are faculty on our course who have come to me and said, you know, Greg, I've got all these guys, you know, they're 18, they were in fights, they were this, they that. You can't expect me to send all of them for CTs. And here's the only argument I'm willing to take and respect. If you say it's 150 times the radiation of a chest X-ray. For your thyroid, for your neck, that kind yeah, of thing. Yeah, for your thyroid and your neck, and they're young. Okay, I'll listen to that a little bit. But if your grandma, you know what? She isn't going to live 30 years to get a lymphoma from this or thyroid cancer. Just light her up. Make light her glow her in the dark. Okay. All right, moving on. 
scaphoid fractures. I don't want to spend a lot of time on this. You know that they can be occult and nasty, and there's this issue of the bone dying from avascular necrosis. So <laughs> if you find that there's snuff box tenderness there, you can take a plain x-ray. But the problem with that is that there's this misrate. It's probably overstated, but the standard of care would be that that wrist and thumb would be immobilized for a couple of weeks, and then you re-x-ray them. When, in fact, my position on this is try to do the best study. And the literature has looked at plain x-ray CTs and MR, and MR is the best study to ascertain whether you get a fracture. I want to know right then and there. I don't want any splint on that I don't need on for two weeks. And I think that's the long and short of it. I think that's oversimplifying it. And like you say, Rick, people still get bills that can look horrendous. I mean, is it true that the marginal cost is very different? It's not much at all. But the point is, you're going to get a bill that comes home for $1,500 for that damn MRI. I think it's still reasonable. If you've got clear point tenderness and you've got to answer that question, then the MRI is perfect. Well, I think also, too, we're talking about medical legal. So if you want to get a plain film and it's negative, you can splint them and that's the standard. That's fine. Yeah. But then what you have to tell them is this. Splinting them is perfect. Getting a plain film, I don't care. But what you have to say is... If pain persists beyond this period of time, we're going to have to do a more sophisticated test. And I think that in the old days, in our youth, Rick, we brought them back for re-X-ray. And what you actually found was a certain percentage did have a healing calcium line on that film. Or worse, that they did not have a healing line. <laughs> Which is much they had worse. a line that wasn't healing. But the British, nobody's as cheap as the British. Even their papers say, any doubt on that second visit... Get an MRI and answer the question. Of course, the Brits ask a different question. They talk about total societal costs, time off of work, lost time injury, permanent disability from the non-healing scaphoid. They ask the right set of questions about this, and quite frankly, we're not. I do have here in my notes that the sensitivity of a MRI for picking up a fracture is 98%. So says the analysis of 22 studies on the topic. Yeah, the only problem with the sensitivity of 98% is what was the gold standard that determined the other 2% weren't there? Don't ask these difficult questions. Yeah, just I, read I, it. Come on. I don't want to Jerry Hoffman your argument here, but if there's no gold standard, we can't say from this. But the risk management take-home is real easy. There's no such thing as a benign sprained wrist. You splint it, you re-examine it, you warn them about it. And you know what? From the emergency department standpoint, they're not getting better in a week. I'd have the orthopod take a look. Okay, so that's pretty much it on the imaging that we did for the July issue. I think one of the key points at the end of this was to be aware of the limitations of various imaging strategies and be willing to acknowledge that they may be wrong. and They are not the definitive end-all, be-all. Your judgment is important in here. Yep. And making the patient a partner in progress. Oh, that's cute. Yay. All right, Rick, we moved on to August of 2010, and we reviewed the study by Terrence Brown, MD, JD, BFD, an epidemiologic study of closed claims in the emergency department malpractice on a national database, and that national database was the one used by the PIAA. How good is that? Well, I think it probably covers about 50 to maybe 60% of the emergency physicians in the United States. It's pretty good. The other thing is, they used a fairly long period of time 
1985 to 2007, 22 years. I think that's really one of the major problems here is we're talking about was it the same in 85 as it is now kind of thing? And they weren't very good. They're good at that, right. I'm sure there's a few take-home points here, but not a hell of a lot. Well, what they pointed out was diagnosis is still the principal reason that you get sued, misdiagnosis. Now, you can't monitor all the psychological factors, how mad they were at the doctor, how mad they were at the hospital, that sort of thing. But if the diagnosis is wrong, or at least is not going in the right direction, you can have some real problems. About 17% of the cases had to do with the improper performance of a procedure of some kind, and only 7% were related to failure to supervise or monitor critically ill patients. By supervision, I think that includes PAs and NPs, essentially the mid-levels. Here's the problem with this study. It started in 1985. It goes to 2007. What we've seen in that time period is a quadrupling of the use of mid-levels here in the United States. So I don't think this study gives us a good handle about what's happening with the medical legal situation with mid-levels. But you've said in the past that there's a lot more suits involving mid-levels now. Oh, absolutely. But it won't be reflected in this data because it blends too much stuff. It is at least helpful for docs to understand that probably 60% of the cases are closed with no indemnity payment. But whenever you say that, doctors think, oh, we got off sort of scot-free here. No, the cost of defense, and in the insurance companies I've been involved with, half the cost of running the company is the cost of the defense. I always love a doctor who says, well, I've been sued five times. I've never lost. No, you've lost five times. And if you want to have the dollars added up, that's exactly what happens. When we do go to court, this backs up the fact that juries kind of like doctors. There's another study, not referenced here, but what it shows is if doctors are tried by themselves without a hospital, they win about 90% of the time. If it's a doctor and a hospital... It drops another 10 or 15%. If it's only the hospital being sued, such as a big entity like Henry Ford Hospital, Beaumont Hospital, where the doctors are actually employees, so the only real defendant is the hospital, we don't do quite as well. They actually like doctors. They hate big institutions. And so I think you're always better to have doctors in court representing those institutions than to have just lawyers representing an institution if it comes time for a suit. Moving on. Oh, one other point here, Rick. I'm sorry I didn't hit this one. There's this idea in the country that, oh, most of these are frivolous lawsuits. Yes, there's no question that there's a bunch of them which are frivolous, small, but it may only be 20%. Their view of it was about 80% of those things which a legal action was started had to do with a serious injury or death. So it's not all a bunch of mediocre, small cases. There really are injured people out there. Now, that doesn't mean we cause the injury, but whenever there's a serious loss, the U.S. mentality is is somebody's got to pay for it. Well, the most common reason for malpractice suits is malpractice by far, and lawyers don't want to take on cases that are going to be lost. And so... 
although the number of suits that are filed have gone down substantially, the suits that are remaining are serious suits. Well, they're going to be absolutely serious suits. And that's reflected by the fact that if you go back to 1986, the average adjusted payment, indemnity payment, that's the award you pay to the patient, was about $115,000 in 86. And in 2007, it had gone up to $384,000, and that's in constant dollars. So if you say it's been tripled since then, you're looking at almost a million dollars in today's money for a claim. So that's serious money, and we need to kind of keep it involved. They use a figure here that said for the 7,200 cases that they looked at in which there was no payment made, they still spent $85 million to defend them. So somebody's getting rich on this, whether it's the experts, the defense attorneys, somebody's making money on these things. Well, that's why you've said in the past, to be named is to lose. Is to lose. There you go. Let's go on to eye emergencies. I just want to hit the highlights here. You got to be aware of these penetrating injuries that might be a cult. This is the ones we're hammering or grinding takes place. You might want to do a plain x-ray, but the better study is a CT to find something in your eye. So that's one of the sources of a trap that you can get into. One-eyed patients got to have a really low threshold for involving an ophthalmologist, no matter what the heck they're complaining about. As far as I'm (laughs) concerned, if you're one-eyed, I'm on the phone to ophthalmology. The thing is, the function of somebody with one eye is X. If it's no eyes, that's a pretty major problem. Yeah, we have no sympathy for ophthalmologists. They rarely get called, so don't hesitate on getting some help in these cases. Do not even think about taking on a one-eyed case by yourself. Yeah. By the way, just as one of those things I've seen a half a dozen times, an eye patient who didn't have a visual acuity on the chart. I don't understand that. You wouldn't look at a heart patient who didn't have a blood pressure and a pulse. That's the output of that organ. Well, the output of the visual organ is visual acuity. So why in the world would you walk into a room without a visual acuity? Do I have a case on that? Absolutely. The patient said that their visual acuity was fine until the doctor dug off a foreign body. There was then some infection which took place, and there was no visual acuity on that chart prior to the action. Well, obviously, you need a visual acuity, but it doesn't have to be the first thing you do. What happens in these cases have got something in their eye, like a caustic or something like that? Well, that's different. They come in, they get hosed down. They get them hosed, yeah. And numb up that eye and wash it out, evert the lid, Get make sure you get all the particulate matter out of there. But at some point in time, yes. get an acuity. Yeah, you need to do that at some point in time. Yeah. Uh, what else we got in the list here? Well, Opto console for floaters, flashers, spiders, spider webs, and for a possible detached retina. This is just recognizing the limits of emergency medicine. So what's the matter? Well, I just had this thing float by my eye, one eye. I remember an older woman who was driving from Chicago to Ann Arbor, stopped at Chelsea Hospital where I was working, and looked in. Yes, she has some blood, and I had to tell her, we're going to have to ship you to the university where they can look at this probable retinal detachment. She was livid that we did not have a retinal service at a 52-bed hospital in the middle of nowhere. But I think there needs to be some honesty here about what you can actually do in the department. The other thing is any doctor who believes that with a handheld ophthalmoscope, 
you can see what the ophthalmologist can see using a slit lamp and a ruby lens looking up in all these corners and angles. You can't. So just don't think, well, the history is compatible with the retinal detachment, but I don't see anything. As far as I'm concerned, that's a historical diagnosis. Remember also that corneal abrasions in association with contact lenses or from foreign material are prone to pseudomonas infections. Correct. Do not patch those eyes. You'll turn it into a little incubator to facilitate that. Patches in general for corneal abrasions, from a medical legal point of view, you can use them or not. It's a matter of comfort. I don't think there's anything that would mandate that you do that. No, in fact, all the literature has gone back the other way. I'll tell you a mistake that people do make, though, and I've seen made with kids, including a lawsuit, is the fact that if you're looking in kids for a foreign body, evert the lid and say so on your chart. Because you can get a cockle burr, you can get something, you can get a foreign body under that lid. In fact, I had a mother come in one time who was just livid at the pediatrician because he saw a red eye and put the kid on drops. It's, he's got to have an infection, right? All I did was invert the lid, and there's a cockle burr. And it, when we stained that child, you see these lines going up and down. We knew there was something abrading that cornea, and you have to do the right exam. Well, the right exam actually is a slit lamp. And, you know, I don't know that there's any kind of medical legal issue here, but the slit lamp will tell you the answer 99% of the time. And you see these vertical scratches. That means if something was or is under the upper lid, you must evert the lid and take a look. Right. It's just a part of it. Rick, it's not just doing it. It's writing it down. People always say, well, there's not a checkbox for that. Just write it to the side type it in, do whatever you have to do, but make sure they know you did the correct examination. That's what the defense is all about. By the way, people want you to do the right exam, but I think you ought to know what that is in trauma to the eye. And around college campuses, I see kids who play paddle ball and squash and all that sort of thing. It's interesting how many of them who are very smart people, I'm sure the kids are all bright, are willing to actually play with a squash ball without wearing their eye protection. And you realize a squash ball is the perfect size to fit inside the orbit. So whenever I have one of those that's hit, my assumption is there's a traumatic lesion to that eye. And one of the keys is watch the pupils move. You like that pupil stuff. I like that pupil stuff, guy. And I want it it documented on the chart. They got a little red eye in there. Bang. The other thing is if you see any hyphema at all, That's a call to ophthalmology. I do not want to hear this discussion that we've let them go home over the weekend to let that bleed settle down. No, 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 I want them seen. What about that business on pain on extraocular movements? That's a tip-off to some nasty potential conditions. Well, if you have a patient with headache and on simple extraocular movement, they have one of two things. If they have any diplopia, which means there's going to be some limitation in one eye or the other, or... It is actually painful to look side to side. The question is, do they have a retroorbital cellulitis? Some people have said that's also found in cavernous sinus thrombosis. And optic neuritis. And optic neuritis. The nice thing about optic neuritis is there ain't a lot we're going to do for it, but we're at least going to notify. And I've never seen a case of optic neuritis, Rick, where they did not have decreased vision. So pain on moving the eyeball is not a good thing. Not a good thing. That's exactly right. And so I would pay attention to it. And whenever there's limitation of motion after trauma, the assumption is that there's a fracture there you don't see. 
and the study of choice is not a plain x-ray of the orbit. It's a CT to see if they've got a blowout fracture. There you go. Did we talk anything about orbital or periorbital infections? Sometimes it's very difficult to distinguish one from the other. I think this is another place where you ought to have a low threshold for getting some help because if it turns out that it is a retroorbital infection and you miss it, you've got big problems. You've got big problems. One of the things I would point out is on examination, if there's a tight line of redness halfway down the upper lid, that almost always means you've got dissection coming from the back following right along the course of the optic nerve and coming up around the sides. And there will be a very distinct line separating that from where the eyebrow is. I have never seen one of those that wasn't a bad situation. Remember your tetanus shot kind of thing? These injuries qualify for a tetanus shot? Yeah, they do, Rick, but I've never seen that lawsuit. The other thing is, I think last year in the United States, there were, what, 60 reported cases of tetanus? At most, and they were all at USC. Well, they all at USC. (laughs) Billy Mallon saw them all, and half of them were neonatal. The other thing is, it depends on your patient population. He sees a lot of undocumented aliens who have not had their primary series of shots. I think in, you know, small towns in Iowa, that's going to be pretty rare. Remember the rust ring. Somebody's got to take it out. If you don't feel comfortable, get your ophthalmologist to do so. I never understand why people think this is some minute-to-minute emergency. In fact, the next day, the rust ring falls out by itself because you've developed a little white cell reaction behind it. But there's no necessity, if you're not good at this technique, they haven't lost anything by going to see the ophthalmologist in a day. Nothing. The laceration of the lid margin, remember that's an ophthalmology case? It is an ophthalmology case. I've seen one in my career, however, that was a lawsuit, and that had to do with the doctor really was not good at aligning the lid margins, and this was a young woman. You'd be amazed at how a small defect on something like that can be quite noticeable to people when they look at you. And she was very upset with the way that thing closed. Remember, lacerations potentially involving the canalicular system are also off-limits for ER docs. Just get some help. Lastly here, oh yeah, temporal arteritis. There was a little bit on that. That was the person who had the headache and the tenderness over the temporal artery and the potential loss of vision immediately thereafter. You know, I honestly think if docs are honest and you say, patient had a headache, did you feel their head? I think there's all kinds of people who are brought in who no one does an exam. Whenever a patient, I always ask, can you put your finger on the pain? And if they can take their finger and put it one place and you can palpate that discomfort, it's probably a local inflammation of some kind. And certainly temporal arteritis patients, I've got at least two of those cases where vision was lost. And on the the sheet, the record, you could not tell whether the head had been examined. There you go. Okay, so you're going to watch for your temporal arteritis. You're going to get your SED rate. You're going to give these people steroids immediately because there is the potential for a rapid loss of vision that you want to avert. And lastly, but I don't even think we saw it, we didn't talk about glaucoma. Are there any risk management issues for glaucoma? You know, I've never actually seen in my series anyone who was sued for it 
And I think that the number of acute onset glaucoma patients is relatively rare. Maybe in my career, I've seen three. So we won't worry about it. No. Uh, By the way, the first one, I was a little slow in picking up on that case. Why? Their chief complaint was nausea and vomiting. And the nurse said to me, what do you think about that red eye he's got? Yeah, red eye. I better go back in and look at that. Red eye, mid-range, fixed pupil, steamy cornea precipitated by opportunities for the pupil to dilate. So you're going in to see a movie or something like that, yeah. and it blocks those Schlem canals and all that other jazz. It's Canal of Schlem. Very good, sir. Yeah, you, I'm, you I'm proud of you. That, did you? <laughs> God, I bet you even went to med school. Okay, we've got uh, September coming to you. Greg, you want to yeah, pick it up? We do. We have some good stuff in September. We've got the AMA report based on the Physician Practice Information Survey, And what they sort of figured out by looking at all these physicians was that if you're an emergency doc, you're going to be sued about once in every maybe 17 to 21,000 visits. Now, the spread on that in the United States is huge. If you practice in Dade County, Florida, it may be one in every 5,600 visits. That's almost once a year. If you're in South Dakota, it may be one in every 80,000 visits, which means that's a 20-year career. But if you take the 21,000 visit number, that means an emergency doc will get a filing with their name on it, a piece of legal paper with their name on it, about once every four years. Now, if it takes four or five years to resolve the suit, that means you're almost always under suit in one form or the other. It's not like you get a piece of paper and it's gone. So this is a real issue. Well, hopefully the suits won't take four years, given the fact that most of them go away or settled or those kinds of things. Well, unfortunately, Rick, emergency docs do things stat. They think a long time is 10 minutes. A history that takes more than two minutes is endless to an emergency doctor. Even getting people off, I had a physician that it cost me $10,000 and six months of haggling because basically he signed a chart that was the wrong chart. And we filed all the paperwork and we had to swear we were a member of the Communist Party of the United States and all this other sort of thing. You think it's easy and you think it's free. It's not. So any doctor who thinks that in a week or two this is going to be gone, you're wrong. That's not the way the system works. Our next subject was ENT issues that were picking up in the nose. And the nose, the biz buzz of the nose is septal hematoma and CSF rhinorrhea. Those are the things that you can't miss. You've got to take a look. You've got to document that you've looked at the septum because it needs to have a drainage of that hematoma so you don't have a saddle nose deformity later. So that's the risk there. And CSF rhinorrhea is basically water coming out of the nose. It's not mucus. It's water. And sometimes it's spontaneous. Usually it's associated with trauma. And you need to talk to a neurosurgeon. There is this controversy of, do I need to give antibiotics? Do I not need to give antibiotics? But certainly don't deal with that alone. No, I don't think that's the emergency doc's call. I have dealt with several epistaxis cases. And if you're going to place a posterior pack in somebody's nose, that's being done much more rarely these days because of the newer instruments which are available. But I think that those tend to be in older patients their oxygen saturation does go down, and I would not send those patients home with a posterior pack. I think they need to come into the hospital until that pack is removed. Yeah, they're subject to arrhythmias, ischemia. People who have CHF and COPD are particularly 
prone to these complications, and so you want to get some help. You also have to remember that some of these people are going to be on anticoagulants, and anticoagulant is aspirin, it's Plavix, it's warfarin. Obviously, you want to know the INR in these cases. You might wind up having to reverse it the best you can. Remember, we're talking about serious amounts of fresh frozen plasma, 10 to 15 mLs per kilo, or hopefully you're really, really with it and you have prothrombin complex concentrate to help you out. Uh, you've been reading your own literature. Here, no, right? I'm reading what the Canadians have and most of the rest of the civilized world has. Yeah, yeah. Okay. The nasal foreign bodies, just one comment, and that is when you're digging them out of a kid, it's perfectly fine to sedate them. And as far as I'm concerned, I don't care whether it's in their ear or in their nose. If you're having real trouble getting it out, it's never a minute-to-minute emergency. You can call ENT. You can set them up to be seen the next day. I do have a case where a kid had put a bead up his nose, and the doctor, in getting it out, didn't use the blow in the other nostril technique or blow in the mouth technique. What he did was he tried to dig it out with a small ear curette, and unfortunately, he removed part of a turbinate. And uh, that, that didn't go well. Greg, we don't talk about digging it out. We talk about gentle extraction <laughs> of the foreign body. Can I go back and mention that it's a really good idea in people who have nosebleeds to check for petechiae and bruising and those kinds of things. So lift their shirt up and see if they got anything that suggests that they have a bleeding diastasis. You mean a here. diffuse coagulopathy of some kind? Yeah, I mean, yes. some people out of the blue can develop thrombocytopenia. It's well known. And if you don't look, you won't find it. And you're not really taking care of the true problem. All right. Why don't we talk about mouth and throat for a minute? There aren't a lot of lawsuits there. If you just remember a few things, peritonsillar abscess does still exist. It's not the same as a sore throat. And there is a rare condition that we discussed with Dr. Talon one time on this program, and that's a rare complication of the peritonsillar abscess called Lemire's syndrome. It's a fusiform bacteria, but they can get an infection of the jugular vein causing a septic thrombosis. These are people who come not just with pain in their throat, but pain in their neck, and they will actually have a tender jugular vein. And that's why it is probably worthwhile to properly examine the patient when they're in the department. And there have been some suits on that one. Yeah, you need to be aware of this entity. It's not very common. They get septic emboli being shot down into their lungs from the jugular vein that is infected, and they really can be quite sick. So think of a person having unilateral neck pain and a sore throat, maybe it's this more unusual condition. All right, what about periapical abscesses? Not a big medical legal problem, but you know what? They can be treated, and I think the best thing you can do for those humans is put in a block, an inferior alveolar block, and take away their pain. Diphtheria is still around. you got to recognize it. I saw a case. There are still these clusters of outbreak. We're not really quite sure why. It's a really nasty disorder. It looks like the bottom of the birdcage, but it is associated with multiple systemic aspects as well, cardiac and neurologic, and you don't want to miss it. I don't know whether it's going to be a medical legal problem if you miss it, but you need to consider it because it is still out there. Well, this is the dropping of herd immunity. This is the Jenny McCarthy syndrome that we're not going to immunize our children because it'll make them autistic. These things can come roaring back. 
I haven't seen a case of diphtheria since I was a medical student, but it is an awful disease. One thing that we do occasionally see, however, is angioedema involving the mouth and the lips. As far as I'm concerned at this point in time, it's an ACE inhibitor until proven otherwise. Mm -hmm. So at least look at their drug list where you can get in trouble if you have not looked at the drugs and made a change in those drugs when that person leaves the department. Any hints on pharyngeal foreign bodies? You know, is it a scratch? Is, do I need a CT? Those are always a dilemma. Well, I do the best I can. I, I mean, most of us have tried to look down there, and now with some of the newer instruments, we can get a better look. But what I know is this. If their airway's fine and they're otherwise doing well and it's an adult, I have no problem with calling ENT and saying, if they have any symptoms tomorrow, can you guys just do a quick scope? And they can go down and take a look in their offices and do a very good job with that. So it's not so bad. Have I ever had them find things? Yes, I have. Sometimes those little fish bones, you can't see them that well when they're covered with saliva in the department. Well, that that brings up the issue of is it reasonable to get a CAT scan in those cases? You don't do soft tissue over the neck. That's dead. That's dead. That's gone. But I specifically remember a case. The CAT scan clearly showed the foreign body that was not otherwise seen. Well, that's another way to do it. What I thought is still reasonable is to say, tonight, I can't find it. If there's any discomfort at all tomorrow, you're going to be at Dr. Smith's office. So from a medical legal perspective, you think you can do it either way? I think either one of those would be perfectly reasonable. The one foreign body up there that doesn't seem to go away is kids and button batteries. If they've got a nickel halfway down, that's one thing. If they've got a battery down there is an electrolytic solution that's set up and they do get tissue necrosis from those and you really can't sit around waiting on that kind of problem yeah if you defer the removal of a button battery i think you're in trouble if the kid gets uh, some kind of necrosis of this or that the outer infections of the ear and the canal are pseudomonas and that's something to think about in terms of the antibiotic that you will pick whether it be topical antibiotic or a systemic antibiotic. Remember that the fluoroquinolones do now have a black box around them regarding the tendinopathies and they're real and so you need to be relatively careful about the antibiotics that you pick. Foreign bodies in the ear are pretty much the same as the nose. Except you don't can't do that blowing technique. No, you can't. Unless, well, you, unless they have a hole in their eardrum. <laughs> right, right, exactly. But there are some techniques to get it out. Remember, sedation is an option and referral is an option. You don't have to get it out that night kind of thing. Yeah, absolutely. I don't know why we ever got into that thought that it has to come out immediately, but it doesn't. Vertigo, uh, you got to make sure you've got peripheral vertigo. We can't be dealing with any central vertigo sending them home. Stop. We think we can tell central from peripheral vertigo. I would put out one warning. If they're above the age of 60, that includes you and I, Rick. You understand (laughs) that. We're in the old guy group. There was one good study that was published that said 25% of people above that age presenting with vertigo, vertigious-like symptoms, had cerebellar involvement, TIAs, that sort of thing. I'm very cautious about making that diagnosis casually in an older patient. My first thought is, I'm missing their TIA. And I have no problem with somebody who wants to aggressively work on that as a TIA. If it's going to be peripheral, it better meet all the criteria of peripheral. They may have ringing in their ear or buzzing in their ear, their horizontal nystagmus. It's worse when they turn their head, came on suddenly. Those are kind of the differentials. I'm happy with that. 
But you know what? If you don't have all of that stuff, I'd ask myself a question. Could this be anything else? What also sits at that pontine angle? And it's more than just fibers well, You're, you're frightening the me there, Chief, because yeah. we see a lot of people who come in with vestibular neuronitis that was fine last night. Now the room is spinning around and they're not particularly elderly. And they're 32 and they're fine. And they're fine. vomiting. And- I'm not talking about that case. What I just said was above the age of 60. There are some papers in our database, by the way, which would suggest that we at least better do the good exam. By the way, a lot of those people are not examined well. Next thing is, I went through a bunch of cases this month, Rick, and I could just kind of hit a couple of things there. And lo and behold, first case was an emergency doc sued for attempting to remove a pee from the ear of a child. And I think he also removed the stapes at the same time. What's that little little bone coming out of there? Yeah, I wouldn't worry about it because there's two more of them. (laughs) And they're small anyway, so it's not a problem. We also looked at a teenager. And this is an interesting case. A teenager who had sustained a head injury during football. Emergency doc saw him, placed him basically, said he could go back to practice. And several weeks later, he sustained another head injury. And now he had dizziness and vomiting and subsequently collapsed. The way the emergency doctor was involved in that case was he had set up no plan for re-examination or re-entry into the system. I think that people are becoming more concerned about these head-injured kids. Don't feel pressure from some coach or some trainer that you have to put people back into play just because their exam is changing. You know, there's all these new scales, which the National Hockey League is using, football. They've got to see a doctor in the National Hockey League in the dressing room. And they go through these repeat scales, which they did in training camp. And if they don't meet those goals, they don't go back on the ice. Well, my point of view is if you have a genuine concussion that you ought not tell the person you can go back Tuesday, you can go back Saturday. You need to see another physician to clear you that you're not having any residual neurologic symptoms. Yeah. It's Don't take it on yourself to give them a return date. I also presented a case where the ED had an established callback program to follow up on discharged patients, and they missed a callback. Don't write checks you can't cash. If what you say in your program and protocol is, we're going to check with all these people, better be able to do it. See, I don't really like that. I don't think you should be extending your liability beyond the department. You give them follow-up, they can always come back in. That's the line that you end every discussion with. We're open 24 hours a day, seven days a week, come on back in. This had to do with missing a callback. And this was an unusual case. The child had a positive, I think, streptococcal culture, which grew back a day later, something like that. The child went on to have rheumatic fever. Now, they're sitting there 24 hours later after this visit with a positive culture result. If you weren't going to do something with it, why did you take it? So what they have now is the smoking gun sitting in their lap. They don't know what to do with it. That was not a good idea. So if you're doing these callback programs on everybody and all the various cultures and that sort of thing, rethink that issue. 
Any other? Well, I'm going to only hit one other, and that's the case brought against the emergency physician for failing to perform proper tests and misdiagnosing as a Bell's palsy, a stroke in a 39-year-old presenting with facial hemiplegia and slurred speech. Where in the hell do you get slurred speech in Bell's palsy? You don't. You don't. The other thing is, if it's more than the lower third of the face, the lower third of the face is involved if you're doing something central. To make a diagnosis of Bell's palsy, you have to have all three branches of the seventh cranial nerve involved. They didn't. She had a lower corner of her mouth and slurred speech. And this is a young woman, by the way, who smoked and took birth control pills. You know what? That ain't going anywhere. That didn't do well. Gregory, there was one more part of that issue, the September issue, and it was about this idea of discounting Medicare patients and the ruling that says you cannot waive their co-pays and deductibles without waiving their entire bill and that if you Medicare finds that you're doing that on a recurring basis, they're not going to be pleased at all. But the point here is recurrent basis. I mean, there are certainly groups which will, on an occasional basis, right. drop any extended money. And I think we had someone write to us and explain that to us, too, didn't we? The July 2010 bulletin from the CMS gets into the specifics. Your billing company should know about this. This is just a little heads up because people tend to feel if they just waive the copay, the insurance company will pay the rest. That is illegal. It is. If you're doing that on a regular basis, you're in big trouble. October 2010 coming to you. Randy Pilgrim, a great interview. Randy, you did a fabulous job. The focus was on complaints. It was a great interview. And let me parenthetically say here, have people in your department listen to that issue. Randy is a great guy, a bright guy, and we very much enjoyed his contributions. He said something that was very important, and that is to have an organized plan to look at complaint management. And he explained to us the last system, capital L, capital A, capital S, capital T, which was, listen, apologize or at least make them feel comfortable and make them feel good about their problem is going to be handled. Then solve the problem and thank them and invite them back in to use your facility anytime. And Randy said that if you do this in a structured manner, you're going to be in pretty good shape. And I love his line. He says, if you're not happy, we don't want you to be here. If we can't serve you, we're not doing our job correctly. We want to try and make you happy. And I think this runs antithetically to a lot of the way we've thought in emergency medicine. He never mentioned that sort of mentality where a doc says, you're just lucky to have me here. And Randy really sort of set us straight on that. and He did a very good job. I think he also said that not only does he use templates, but he is very, very careful. They're in multiple states. His organization's in multiple states. He says you need to be aware of the I'm sorry laws, which vary from state to state. What you say when you apologize to a patient or when you speak to a patient about a complaint, in many states, they don't allow you to either discover that or to use that as admissible evidence that you committed malpractice in a trial. That's just discussion between a doctor and a patient, and it cannot be used as proof. That's not true in all states, and we need to kind of keep that in mind. This was actually really, really well done. Stellar. And frankly, it's a little difficult to portray 
the nuances that Randy so beautifully conveyed. He was very articulate about it, very sincere about it, and I think it was a home run. Yeah, one of the things that he mentioned, too, is you and I have no hesitation in involving another physician. Someone came in with bones out the skin. Ortho is going to know about it in a nanosecond. Randy says we should also be involving other kinds of expertise when we're dealing with these kinds of complaints and problems. We need to involve, depending on what's going on, we need to involve the hospital attorney or the hospital risk manager. We can involve other folks so that we've really talked through the issues and are doing the best to resolve the problem for the patient. Yeah, he made a list here of the people or the situations where you really ought to get somebody to hold your hand, whether it be risk management or an attorney, the threat of a lawsuit claim or litigation, a demand for money, involvement of an attorney by the other person, by the complaining patient, an alleged incorrect diagnosis associated with a poor outcome, death or other adverse outcomes. Yeah, I wouldn't argue with that. Yeah. A return ED visit within 24 hours for the same complaint now that, and the patient is now complaining about that. Repeat phone calls concerning the same complaint as well. All of those things, he says, are raising the bar. You should get some help. And it's not just the complainer who's in front of you. There is such a thing as a reasonable cadre of disease entities which are going to result in a complaint or legal action. The death of a child in the department is never a good thing for a lot of reasons. But when that anger and guilt gets translated into action by the parents, this is the kind of case you should be reviewing in advance before you hear from anyone and get the hospital and your risk manager people, or at least certainly your hospital representatives to be contacting that family, helping them, seeing what we can do, because the risk is so great. If you have somebody who is quadriplegic, C5 down after an accident or this, that, another thing, assume that there's going to be a dozen attorneys read that chart because the complexity of managing a patient like that, particularly in the first year, is huge. He also talked about situations where when you get help, it has varying degrees. Like he talks about advisement, where you talk to your risk management person or attorney to tell you and advise you about how you should deal with this problem. He also then talks about co-management when they are physically involved with you in the settling of this case and in talking to the patients. And lastly, when the attorney for the risk manager is solely in communication, you've abrogated it to them. But that certainly raises the bar with regard to concern because when your lawyer is now talking to the patient or the patient's agent, it's getting into the nasty level. One of the things I really thought that he did well was point out with sincerity that we're supposed to take the patient's complaint very seriously, and we should convey that we're taking it seriously, that the complaint is important to us, and that we are going to do what we can to solve the problem, although we cannot go back into the past and undo the past. What we can focus on is what can we accomplish at the present time. Right. We can't rehash it. But I think he said something was very important, and that is feedback is the essential element of a service business. You want to know how you're doing, except for us. And quite frankly, we frequently don't want to know how we're doing. And yet this sort of feedback is not actively sought by a lot of the healthcare industry. He said, every other industry asks you, sends you 
markers, sends you things to fill out. Delta Airlines sends me one after every trip to say, how are we doing? We're just not as focused on providing patient satisfaction as we ought to be. So again, thanks, Randy, for participating in this. It was a great interview. Can I do one more point before we leave? Sure. Because I do think it's important from a medical legal point of view is whether you involve the offending doctor. The idea is, first of all, the offending doctor, the one who's the complainants against, they need to know that that that's going on. Right. But what he was talking about is whether you involve the offending doctor in the conversations with the patients. And my concern, and he acknowledges, is that if the patient may feel very uncomfortable if the offending doctor is now talking to that person. Exactly. And that's why the director of the department and the head nurse may be the people to sit with that particular patient at that particular time, just because the patient is more willing to talk. The other thing is, when they see the face of that doctor, let's say there has been the death of a child, they associate that face with the bad outcome. And sometimes it destroys their rational view of what happened. Okay, then we had an interview with Mark Plaster. Mark is the editor and publisher of Emergency Physician Monthly, and we reviewed his Standard of Care project, which is an attempt to put in his newspaper clinical cases and ask emergency physicians uh, what they think should be done. He's hoping to uh, establish a large database of opinions of doctors that can be therefore at least theoretically used to help establish whether something is or is not the standard of care. Yeah, well, let's lay the groundwork again. Every state in the United States runs on English law to some extent, except the one we're sitting in, which is, of course, Louisiana, which is Code Napoleon. But for this sort of malpractice case, they use the same setup, which is a standard of care. The law's view of standard of care is that which a physician of like or similar training would do under like or similar circumstances. It has nothing to do with the concept of best practice or ultimate care. It's not what could be done. It's what's actually done around the country. And what Mark's trying to do is develop a database of what is actually done with certain situations around the country. The first case he chose was thrombolytic therapy for stroke. He got a lot of responses saying that this is not the standard of care. And he hopes that this would aid in trials, obviously cannot stand alone. Right. The deposition and testimony of experts will still be in there, but that this may help establish the standard of care in the process. Well, let me just say, from my standpoint, going to court on a regular basis, the best thing we can do is challenge those experts who are giving what I call questionable testimony. I was involved in one last week where a physician in emergency medicine with FACEP after his name said, oh, I never give fluid until I've got the electrolyte pattern back. It had nothing to do with the case, by the way. But I'm sitting there thinking, are you kidding? We start IVs all the time. We give fluids all the time. When's the last time the sodium balance was going to change what you were going to do from a fluid standpoint? And he said that. You know, we need to stop wimping out here, and we got to get to be tougher guys on this issue. Rick, we're moving on to November, 
And we had the good fortune in November of being able to interview Dr. Eileen Brenner, who's the author of How to Survive a Medical Malpractice Lawsuit, The Physician's Roadmap for Success. Now, a little background. We know Eileen, a friend of Risk Management Monthly, and her father, by the way, is an attorney. She was sued, and the experience was so traumatic for her that she had to vent this in some way. She wrote a book and quite a nice little manual about what to do when you're sued. And I think there are some real take-home points in the manual. The first thing is, number one, understand that this is going to be an emotional experience, which is going to take place over time. Doctors under suit don't do well. You know, their golf scores go up, their use of drugs goes up, their alcohol goes up, their depression goes up. All of these things happen, and she's at least honest enough in her book to talk about the effects that it can have on your life. Why is this of some importance? Because I think if you're a director or a colleague, you ought to be at least sensitized to that and understand that the doctor may not be doing well. You know, I've watched this for years. Once the lawsuit arrives, all of a sudden now they're not sure about diagnosis. They want to keep the patients around longer. They want to order more tests, yada, yada, yada. It does change your life and your practice. And she makes some very important recommendations. One of those is you're going to be handed an attorney by the insurance company. If you're not getting along with that attorney, or you don't feel they're acting in your best interest, be honest enough to say so. This person has to be your warrior, your champion, somebody you can depend upon for support through this process. She also referred to the process that you go through when sued, much to the Elizabeth Kubler-Roth stages of death and dying. Denial. It wasn't me. That can't be a real lawsuit. Anger. Bargaining, depression, and acceptance. All of these stages of death and dying, she says, take place in your brain when you go through a lawsuit. And I will say this, looking at physicians at the end of the cases, and the vast majority of people I have defended have won It's never joy, it's never the response, it's just relief. That's what it is. Because now the pain has at least stopped. She had a section called An Ounce of Prevention, where she gives some advice to make your relationship with the patient as positive as possible. Apologize for waiting, even though there's been no waiting. Door-to-provider times are really important to patients. It's helpful to make follow-up phone calls, which Dr. Pilgrim also advised as a good patient advocacy kind of approach. Consider sitting while communicating. Never advise a patient of your perceptions regarding bad care by another doctor. That's not a good thing to do. Liability risks with the use of physician extenders, she talked about. We'll cover that in one of the other issues of Risk Management Monthly. Your medical legal responsibility may be increased if you are receiving payment for these people. Greg, you had talked about that in the past, and that once the lawsuit is over, efforts to undo the damage is important so that you are not over-treating, that you don't have protracted anger, that you don't have negative perceptions of the patient. That's an important kind of thing to do. You know, I think this idea of protracted anger, we suppress it tremendously in medicine. I don't know of any doctors who've been sued who don't feel wronged in some sort of way. And that can put an edge on the way you practice. Let me tell you, you can really put an edge on the way you practice. If it's a smaller town, you may have to see that patient who's currently suing you back in the emergency department. If you're a one-doc shop, 
and they come in, Mtala says you see everybody, and there's no exemption there for if they currently have an action going against you. You really do have to have your emotions under control to see somebody who's gone on record as considering you incompetent and now comes in for care. I think that requires the best of our abilities. So again, we want to thank Eileen for cooperating with us on this project. She did a great job. If you're interested in Dr. Brenner's book, it's available at www.drbrenner.blogspot.com. And she'll arrange a personally autographed copy for you. There you go. Hey, there we are. Did we get a commission for that? No, we don't. Rick, we're pure <laughs> as the driven snow. We're, All right. Yeah. What do we have next? An interview with Greg Moore, faculty, emergency medicine residency, Madigan Army Medical Center, speaker at the recent ASIP Scientific Assembly, where he was addressing, beware the new hotbed of litigation. Yeah. And a couple of those issues, we're really glad that he brought them to our attention and as would happen, I've had cases since then which involved him. One of them was with pain medication. He used a Dilaudid case, but that was a case where all patients metabolize their pain medications a little differently. Some people handle it well, some people do not. Just understand that you and the staff should be perfectly willing to intercede if necessary and monitor patients who've been given pain medication. I have that current case going right at this period of time. You also talked about failure to follow up on diagnostic tests. He gave some examples. A doctor ordered a PSA for crying out loud and never followed up on it. Obviously, was elevated. Prostate cancer, death, not good. Rick, why would an emergency doctor order a PSA? Because he's an idiot. It must be. I'm sure he had the best of intentions, but then at least call up the family doctor and say, follow up on this test and more than that write that down on the chart and failure to advise a patient of an abnormality that even like blood pressure their yep. blood pressure is elevated you don't tell them they go out they have renal failure those kinds of things yeah he looked by the way at the changing landscape with regard to tia tia is not what it used to be it's not what we grew up with it's not the deficit that lasts for less than 24 hours now it's the deficit that lasts for less than an hour. And the bottom line is, if you have something which looks, smells, and tastes like a TIA first time, you better work it up. And there's so many ways of doing that these days to meet the standard of care, but you better do something because nobody's going to be happy when they come back with a stroke. You also mentioned spinal epidural abscess and cord syndromes, which we covered. Necrotizing fasciitis, this can be a really tricky diagnosis. Initially, it's often misdiagnosed as some kind of musculoskeletal issue because there is no clinical manifestations of the infection. But ultimately, these people wind up with serious pathology, surgery, disfiguring surgery, and even death. I think it's good to talk about it, but in the lawsuits I've actually seen, all I can say is there but for the grace. If I'd been there that day, I may have missed those cases. Anyone can pick up the obvious case, but when they've got it in an unusual part of their body, there's no obvious physical symptoms at that moment in time, you can miss these cases. But the problem I think comes up with the assumption that anything that involves the extremities must have been something like an injury that you didn't weren't aware of, or you're working too hard in the yard, or you lifted something that you don't remember. We have a tendency to 
ascribe all of these things to musculoskeletal when, in fact, they may not be the case at all. In all fairness, patients come in and they ascribe yes, they do. to something. When Why? It, because causality. this is the post-hoke argument. And I will not give the entire Latin phrase. Please, please spare us. <laughs> but I will. But the bottom line is, it happened after I picked up the laundry basket. I must have strained my muscle. Or... I'm sick to my stomach. It must have been the sandwich I bought out of the machine at work. But they always have something they relate this to. Okay, December 2010, we did a couple of legal papers. The first was entitled Legal Risks of Curbside Consults. Plaintiff must prove a physician-patient relationship existed. And just by talking to somebody does not mean that this relationship has been established. So curbside consults in general are not situations from a malpractice unless they can establish a relationship with the patient. Yes, if it's a consultant and you're speaking to that consultant in general about what are you doing these days with this kind of infection or that sort of thing, the consultant's probably in good shape. You're not in good shape as the emergency doctor, but you haven't infected him with your negligence. If you say, I'm referring you patient A or B, this is his name, when are you going to see them? And then he gives you orders or things to be done. That's going to be a debate because he would have the right at that time to come in, see the patient, do whatever you want. If you're requesting that a consultant come in, if that's why you've called him, they can be involved in the situation, particularly if they're the on-call doctor for that specialty. I have that case sitting right now. The emergency doctor dealt with a dislocated knee and talked to the orthopedic surgeon who did not come in. So now we're four hours down the road, and what do you think he has? Naturally, a tear in the popliteal artery, and the young woman loses her leg. Believe me, the orthopedic surgeon who never saw the patient is up to his butt in that case. Yeah, he won't have a leg to stand on. So to speak. (laughs) They also point out that you indicated two groups on call for another doctor and on call for the ER. They also point out that those who are in charge with the supervision of residents or mid-levels, they are automatically responsible. They are involved in these cases. Yes. And physicians who are charged with the interpretation of diagnostic studies, we're talking about the radiologist, pathologist, they, by the definition of their job, are involved in these cases. They're not curbside consults. Absolutely. We also discussed an article, the liability claims and costs before and after implementation of a medical error disclosure program. This particular paper, Annals of Internal Medicine in August 2010, was from my home school at the University of Michigan. And this had to do with active surveillance, full disclosure, immediately moving a team in to work with the patient on resolution of the issue or the problem. Here's the problem with this paper, is that they said they decreased the paid claims per year. But while they said that, all paid claims in the state of Michigan had been going down. Claims resulting in lawsuits went down at the University of Michigan, but they went down throughout the entire state of Michigan. Again, we're dealing with a question of, is this what did it? The number that drives this and makes you think that, yeah, There's probably something to this is that their average cost per lawsuit, not notice of intent, but lawsuit, went down from $405,000 to $228,000. And that is impressive. 
And I think there's probably something to their program of full disclosure. Yeah, they talk about active surveillance for medical errors, offers of compensation when errors are identified, but vigorous defense of claims for events not felt to be associated with medical error. This is your neighbor, Greg. It is. In fact, he's going to be discussed in one of the later episodes here. Rick Boothman is the attorney. Rick is at the University of Michigan. He was a defense attorney in malpractice cases for many years before he took this on, and I think he's doing a great job with this program. The next area was high-risk areas in trauma. We got into mild head injury in the anticoagulated patient, aspirin, cumin, and clopidogrel. The bottom line is that they can have hemorrhages, low threshold for doing CTs. The more difficult question is follow-up of these cases. Somebody needs to see them if there's anything going on. You can be very conservative with these cases in terms of follow-up, have them come back the next day. You know, it might not hurt. They may be fine, but these cases are so prone to delayed hemorrhage that you really need to be aware of it. There's going to be lots of lawsuits if you miss this stuff. Yeah, here's the biggest problem. I think we're all attuned to the idea that if they're on Coumadin and they hit their head, there's a problem. Here's what they're not attuned to. You do the first CT scan. What does it show? It's normal. Nothing. That's the problem. And so what you got to do is be thinking down the road about who we're informing, who they're going home with. Is this an old lady who lives by herself? Delayed bleed is not uncommon. I'm probably sitting on a half a dozen cases right now which have to do with anticoagulation and future bleeding. One of the things we often think about is Plavex is a bad actor, clopridogrel. And if you think it's only just the Coumadin people, it's not. And I've had a couple of those which had delayed bleeds, and it wasn't a pretty sight. Tell us about non-contiguous spinal fractures, Greg. Uh, well, bottom line is there are plenty of studies that would tell you that if you have one fracture, you have other fractures. And you need to consider the possibility, if you have one fracture in the spine, that they've got another one. And this is not an unusual situation. And, of course, we don't want somebody going home saying, well, you got a little chip down here in the lower lumbar region. There better be a good examination of the rest of that spine if you're not going to go ahead and do a radiographic study. Right. It's in adults, it's in kids, and I guess the idea is you find one fracture, you just ought to probably image the entire spine. Yeah. Well, you may have to. In fact, there's no question that when the Nexus trial looked at fractures of the cervical spine, many people had several fractures. And so when they decided what they missed, often they picked up the first one and didn't pick up the second one. And this issue of non-contiguous fractures, you can have cervical and then lumbar or cervical, and then thoracic is much more difficult. But you just need to be attuned that this is a very straightforward relationship, and it's your job to kind of be aware of it and perhaps visualize the entire spine. We're not setting any standard of care here. You just should be aware of it. Right, exactly. Rick, in January, we started to continue the discussion of trauma pearls and those that have resulted in lawsuits. So I'm going to just start this out with telling people beware of paradoxical bradycardia and hypovolemic shock. We all grew up thinking shock. Oh, the blood pressure goes down, the pulse rate goes up. You know, that's good in theory. It just is it's destroyed by a bunch of facts. There are plenty of people who under stress and in hypovolemic shock actually get a paradoxical bradycardia. 
So if you're thinking you're avoiding people going into shock because their pulse rate is down, that's wrong. Or even if their pulse is in the normal range, it can be very misleading. And the causes of the shock can be intra-abdominal. It can be external. Some people thought that you had to have a certain kind of hemorrhage. That is not the case. And at least one quarter of the patients who are in traumatic shock situations will have this bradycardia. It's not like you pick it up one in a hundred. This is 25 out of a hundred. This is pretty serious. The next section talked about transfers, and the issue there was avoid excessive testing or imaging in patients who are being transferred. Send them along. The one x-ray that may be helpful is a chest x-ray so that you may identify any kind of pneumothoraces. No blood tests are going to be of any help in the transfer patient. you just got to get them out of there and resist efforts on the part of uneducated trauma centers to get you to do tests or imaging or those kinds of things because the the literature says it won't affect what you do at your hospital, nor will it affect what's being done at the receiving hospital. You just got to move. I think that if I look back over all those cases in my folders, this issue will not go away. When they come in, you feel because you have the test available, you've got to do it. Nothing could be further from the truth. Keep their neck splinted, put their hands to their sides. If they need a chest tube, put it in. But for you to think that you have to do the C-spine film, that's crazy. If you can't fix it at your place, if you can't take them to the operating room, if you can't do these things, why are you doing the study? Because sure as hell, they get to someplace else. They don't trust you or your studies. They're going to do them all over again. I think that this concept of moving from point A to point B is your best defense in almost all cases. There you go. Yeah, you want to be in the place that you'd want your kid in or your brother in if they were hurt. So just get them gone. The next issue is the idea of fear of inappropriate getting into trouble by giving typo or type-specific blood. Well, this is something that's been looked at a lot, Rick. And the bottom line is if you've got five minutes do a type-specific blood, all you got to do is run ABO and RH. That will eliminate 99.5% of all transfusion reactions. We all know about these other factors, the minor factors, Kelly and Buff and all those other sorts of things. But that's part of the big cross match. Don't worry about those things. If they're dying and they need blood, better they carry oxygen to the cells than worry about something down the line. It's pretty easy to get the RH and the ABO. Let's say you have to give it right this minute. What's the matter with giving O, RH negative blood? Really nothing. O, RH negative to females, positive to males, and you will not get in trouble. What you will get in trouble for is delay. Delay, absolutely. And if we look at the cases, I don't remember a case. I've never seen a case. Maybe somebody who's listening has a case where somebody got in trouble for getting a reaction with those standard blood transfusions. I've just never seen the case. The next part was the FAST exam. Be aware that the FAST exam can be falsely negative. One study that we have cited in our literature talks about a sensitivity of 75%. I'm surprised that it would be that low. But the point is, if the patient looks like they're sick and the FAST exam is negative, basically you've got to go in your clinical judgment. They also talk about the digital rectal exam According to the ATLS manual version number eight, it is no longer mandatory in the assessment of trauma patients. It can be done on a selective basis. Can we do it if we want to, though, Rick? Absolutely. Perfect. 
compartment syndrome can be overlooked during the early management of trauma patients. And obviously, this is pain and paralysis out of proportion to reason. As I mentioned earlier, I do have a case where the emergency physician had done everything right. And then all of a sudden, the patient is sent home. And here was the key. The child had no fracture, 17-year-old boy in his leg. But he was a place kicker for a high school football team. And dad called the emergency department back and said, the Tylenol number three is not taking care of his pain. The nurse advised they double the pain medicine, double the pain pill, and come on back. Well, by the time he came back, they needed to go to the operating room and dig dead muscle out of his leg. This is just not the way to go, and you got to think about these things. That is obviously two lessons, not only thinking about compartment syndrome, but we don't practice medicine over the phone. The factors, males below age 35 with a fracture of the tib-fib, you need to know that. This high-energy business, repetitive use, crush injuries, there's a list of things here that would alert you to these problems. Yes, most of them are obvious. Most of the, the P's. But most of us are attuned to that. I think the tougher cases, it's real easy if you've got a guy with a fracture. I mean, it just bounces right into your head. It's when you have this kid who I told you about whose x-rays are negative, but he had pain. This is a tough kid, 17 years of age, never had a complaint in his life, and now he's crying. And the nurse notes that, by the way, as he sent out the door, still crying with pain. A couple of other cases that might precipitate a compartment syndrome, interosseous fluid infusions that are leaking out into the muscular area there. That could be a cause. You yes. be aware of that. Yes. Anticoagulated patients are more prone to these conditions as you might anticipate. And those with this history that you talk about of repetitive use, kicking, those kinds of things, certainly most people are not aware of that risk, but it is real. Yep. And I think the crush injury is the one that is also, like the repetitive injury, you may not see much. This is the guy who had the bumper, the wheel is off, the tire is off, come down on his leg, and maybe it takes them 40 minutes to get that thing off of there. There's going to be a reactive swelling in that area that over the next three or four hours, you may start to see the symptoms. So those things which were taught to us in medical school, heaven forbid, are still valid. If they have pain out of proportion, pain on passive stretching, pallor of the skin, paresthesias, and paralysis, along with the tenderness in the area, if you just take the P's and go down them, I think that you're going to be pretty safe and not miss these injuries. Okay, February 2011. Blood sampling by nurses for evidentiary blood alcohols. One of the themes in this paper is that you've got to know the local rules and regulations. A state-specific policy should be developed by your hospital administration. In this survey of nurses, they were concerned about fear of generating a charge of assault and battery if they held patients down. And it is generally advised that that's not your job. Your job is to draw the blood, let the police hold this person down if (laughs) necessary. Number two, they were concerned that forced blood sampling from an uncooperative patient could potentially injure them, which is not unreasonable. They also point out that they were concerned that in some states, healthcare workers have been arrested by police for failure or refusal to draw blood. And in some cases, those cases have been overturned. But there are statutes that basically say that you are interfering with a police investigation if you refuse to do this. That's why it's important that you are aware of the laws that are specific to your state. (laughs) 
let's hit some big elements here. If they have altered mental status, you not only have a right, you have an obligation to intercede. You don't know what the cause of that altered mental status is. Anybody else we would strap down. We take care of people who can't take care of themselves. So if it's altered mental status, I don't think there's any problem. The big question comes is when you have a patient who's awake, alert, meets all the criteria for independent action. He has capacity. Now, if you assault them, you're in trouble. If, however, the police have brought in a warrant, that's the judge telling you to do something. When a judge tells you to do something, the responsibility falls to the judge, and you better take that seriously. Now, it varies a little bit state to state, but if the judge assigns a warrant, you can assist in that and will not be charged with assault and battery. The thrust here was evidentiary blood alcohol, and we acknowledge that we would be able to do anything we want to ascertain what's wrong with somebody who is out of it in terms of their mental capacity. Correct. But these are, as you said, awake alert people. But uh, please say, I want a blood alcohol. And, and, you know, in California, we never saw anything from a judge. The police just says, we want it. So- but that may reflect the laws of the state of California that police officers have warrant authority. Some states they do, in other states they do not. And state law, we'd like to think that this is uniform across the country, but it is not. So I think this is important that each emergency department understand what the state law requires and when they're going to get into trouble and stay out of trouble. Yeah, basically they've recommended that the hospital find out what the rules are and come up with a policy. Obviously the nurses are not going to know this on a case-by-case basis. They came up with about five or six recommendations. Number one, document the request in writing to include the police officer's name and badge number. Two, document the patient's consent according to your own hospital policy. They've talked here that consent is not necessarily required because when some states, when you get your driver's license, you automatically consent it, or you are assumed to be drunk if you don't participate. By the way, if they brought a warrant, make sure you've got a copy of that warrant and they attach that, it becomes a part of the record. Indicate the non-alcohol solution that is used to prepare the skin, although the newer blood alcohol test will not detect isopropyl alcohol. Note the venipuncture site, preferably distal to IV lines or locks. Use the evidentiary blood alcohol vacutainer supplied by the investigating officer. And lastly, document the name and badge number of the observing officer who takes possession of the evidence. Yeah, that's called a chain of evidence. And actually, we've seen that challenged in cases that our emergency part was involved in. Who took it down to the lab? Where did it go? All of those things have to be marked off if you're going to win in court. Another piece of advice is probably best if hospital staff not get involved in restraining a patient who is having their blood alcohol taken, if that is required by the police. Mm -hmm. You just draw the blood and that's it. Yes, last night I was passing by an establishment on Bourbon Street and there were about 10 people being put in manacles by the police and... Hauled off. In the Hooskow? In the Hooskow is where they on to. All right, what else did we talk about? We talked about prisoner rights. Number one, the only people in the United States who have absolute guaranteed medical care are those people who are the prisoners of the state. So when they come in actually as a prisoner, the state has to pay for it. If they've been brought in 
by the police, and they haven't yet decided to push the issue. Understand this, if the police let them go, probably those people are going to be responsible for paying their own bill. At our own emergency department, we saw this frequently where they'd bring people in, assist of a citizen, and then decide not to pursue charges. Why? Because then the state, or the county in this case, would have to pay for the medical bills. So there are some practical aspects of this. Secondly, adult prisoners have the same rights as anybody else. If they're awake, alert, and competent, you can't force medical care upon them, even if they've come in from a jail. And so don't get into the idea that because they come in in handcuffs, they have no rights, because that's actually not correct. We should follow usual and customary procedures in the department. We should respect people's rights, particularly when they're just under arrest. They are innocent till proven guilty. Not our job to exact punishment on these folks. Lastly, we talked about courtesy care and the fact that it is unwise to assume that you won't be sued by a family member, friend, acquaintance, or colleague. Your malpractice insurance in all likelihood only covers you for the care that you render in the emergency department to registered bona fide patients. So you are bare in these situations. Virtually every emergency department in the country that staffs with a group expects them to bring their malpractice policy. Groups buy the malpractice policy site-specific, patient-specific. They don't care whether you have a license. They don't care whether you're working someplace else. You just can't come back to them to have other care covered by the major policy. And I've had physicians think that when they went to volunteer time at a church camp, this or that, they had a policy. No, they don't. And an emergency doc has an obligation to his own family. I don't want to beat this drum too long, but they have an absolute obligation to their own family to figure out when they're covered and when they're not. And if you go to give care to your neighbor, it's not up to me, but just don't think your partners are obligated to cover your losses. I've seen doctors on the medical staff sue other doctors on the medical staff because of care that was given for free. I've seen nurses sue doctors. I've seen doctors give out advice at various places which have gotten them into trouble. You know what? You better ask those questions of your policy in advance. Don't wait to find out about it at the end. Well, I think we know the answer. Yeah, the answer is no chart, no coverage. And especially if it's not in the setting of the emergency department. Absolutely. They note it's unwise to treat without seeing the patient. Makes some sense. You ought to generate a chart if you're seeing somebody in the emergency department. You can waive the bill. Remember the rules about waiving bill. Waive the entire thing. Prescriptions of controlled substances require a chart listing a specific indication for the drug. And they say federal law states that a prescription for a controlled substance is valid only if it is issued for a legitimate medical purpose by a practitioner acting in the usual course of sound medical practice, which includes a history and physical documentation, etc. I know of an emergency physician who is having his license investigated. He wrote pain medication for his brother-in-law. Be very careful who you write pain medication for. If you're using that DEA number, it should not be for family members. Yeah, be aware that red flags may be raised if you are prescribing a controlled substance for somebody who has the same last name as your own. Now, you were talking about a brother-in-law. It's worse if you do it for your wife, your kids, etc. Right? Could be. All right, that is February.
Okay, March 2011, we start off with the pearls of social networking. Yeah, this has been brought up because of a rash of new cases, firings, discharges of hospital employees, physicians, for using the new social networking media to release information on patients. Rick, I'm from the old school. I think there is a presumption of privacy when you enter a healthcare setting. And just because we have all the new toys and techniques, I was at a conference in California where we went through five cases in major California hospitals where nurses had released photographs of famous people and they were terminated from the hospital. They just got dropped like a bad habit as soon as that happened. Well, UCLA was involved in a number of those because they have a lot of well-known people go there. This is a no, what do they call it, no tolerance policy or... Zero tolerance. Yes, zero tolerance. You're out. You're out. And I mean, there's really nothing you can do about it. But there are other things that happened. Doctors who said, I'm going to take a picture of you, or they did take a picture of someone. And we've all gotten permission and used photographs in teaching settings to put it on your Facebook page and think that one of your 850 best friends is not going to release that around is just insane. I mean, if you want to keep something, you ask for the consent, you keep it private, and you don't put it out into the mainstream because as soon as it gets in the internet, everybody in the world gets a chance to take a look at it. Let me take a lateral on this and talk about a couple of the cases that have come up recently where Risk Management Monthly subscribers have said that they have been audio taped surreptitiously by patients in the emergency department. So this is not just about video. Now it's audio as well. Right. And these conversations were done in settings that were a bit contentious. One of them involved pain medication, somebody seeking pain medication who was recording the interaction. So there needs to be a policy that says no video, no audio, make up a reason why, patient privacy, it'll shut off the monitors or make it up, whatever you want. But I think it should be very clear that this behavior is not allowed and that patients know it and their family know it. I've been talking about this with multiple attorneys in the field. They all say you need to have a posting. Yes. In the emergency department, big letters, easily understood, because the last thing you want is a patient or a member of a patient's family snapping pictures of another patient in the department. And now since everybody's phone, the little tiny phone, also takes movies and takes pictures, you have people trying to snap photographs of badly mauled and beaten patients, that sort of thing. It becomes ridiculous after a while. Just shut it off. Stop them from doing it. We did make reference to a paper that we did a long, long time ago called Elevator Talk. One of my favorite papers. study of inappropriate comments in a public space. My favorite patient <laughs> paper ever, Rick. You got to like this paper. This was all the conversations that were overheard in the hospital elevator by the staff talking about all kinds of things that were inappropriate. The next thing we did was a little bit of phraseology, and I don't think this is a really big deal. Vital signs stable, my contention was that stable, you could be in shock and be stable in shock, and they could be hypertensive, and as long as they stay the same. We also got into the Perla thing, just to remind you about that. All foreign bodies removed, never say that. You don't know that that's the case. There may be something else in there. And then we get into this interview with Jennifer Lotter. 
Yes. Uh, no, that was very, very good. And we thank Jennifer, who's both an RN and a JD, and she has worked for insurance companies. She was actually a, a malpractice defense attorney, and she had a lot of good suggestions for us about physicians being aware of their malpractice insurance contracts, particularly with regard to consent to settle. Most policies these days do not give the physician the right to determine who's going to settle and not settle. If you're interested in having that right, get a copy of your policy and look for the consent to settle clause. But quite frankly, these things are going away. Most groups do not want the individual doctor having the right to say yes or no on a settlement as long as it protects the physician and they do not have to tap his personal assets. When it's within the limits of the policy, a lot of groups are saying, you know what, it's not up to the individual doctor to scuttle this ship. If we can protect the main asset base, sorry, doc, we're going to control that aspect of it. Well, some people, I think, have a undue concern about things being put into the national database. But ultimately, you're not paying the bill here. Somebody else is paying the bill for this. This is the insurance company's money. This is not about your honor. This is about getting out of this for as little money as possible. Well, the other thing is, Jennifer pointed out very quickly that the data bank, everybody understands that it's been perverted. Because if you take big hospitals where the doctors are employees, frequently the only name on that lawsuit is that big name hospital, not the individual doctors. And so doctors who did cause the malpractice or who were involved in it, their names never go to the data bank. So if there was ever a structure that the federal government created, which was useless off the top, never did anything for anybody and was unfair as to who was included, it's the National Practitioner Data Bank. Jennifer did point to one other thing that we ought to think about. She said she knows physicians get upset about these settlement questions. So what recourse does a physician have when the insurer wants to settle, but the physician wants to proceed to trial? Assuming that there is no settlement clause, the doctor doesn't have much leverage. However, there have been cases when the insurance company will assign to the doctor or let him go ahead and try, but then he has to pay out of his own pocket. If they could have settled the case for 40000 or 50000 anything he loses above that is his baby. And you know what? When they offer them that, how many doctors do you think actually are willing to put their mouth where their money is? Virtually none. See, they always want you to be the white knight, spend money, do this and that. When you ask them, if you're that sure we're going to win, if you're that sure that a jury will find you non-culpable, then put your money up. Because why should you risk the entire group's money when we can settle this within the policy limits? The last thing Jennifer spoke about was a bad faith letter. There should be no doctor who does not understand what a bad faith letter is. This is when you want them to settle within your policy limits. And the insurance company is intending to take the case to trial, knowing that if it goes over the policy limit, the physician may have his personal assets attached. If this is happening to anyone who's listening, give me a call. I'll be happy to help you out to handle this problem. Okay, April 2011, this was a unique issue. We had Mike Weinstock on the call Jennifer Stankus, an MD, JD, and John Rockwood, 
a PA who works with Dr. Weinstock, and Michael came up with a case that involved mid-levels. And before we got into the case, we talked about a paper that Mike Mansheen did. Mike's at USC. Mm-hmm. Regarding the increasing use of mid-levels, now Mike's paper was between 1997 and 2006, and he looked at the increasing use. He said, as an example, the percentage of EDs that utilize mid-levels increased from 28% in 1997 to 77% in 2006, and and that's five years ago. It's got to be higher than 77% now. Well, Rick, today at the course... We asked that question of this audience, 140, 150 people. How many of you have mid-levels working in your department at this moment in time? I don't think there were 10 hands that didn't go up. Although it's interesting, there were 19 Canadians in the audience, and they have not embraced this at all. They were struggling with how to bring in these people into the department. So I think they're a little bit behind on that. Mike also pointed out that the percentage of patients seen by mid-levels in the ED increased from 5.5% in 1997 to 12.7% in 2006. So one in eight persons is seen by a mid-level in emergency departments. And I'm sure that this thing has been accelerating. This isn't geometric. This is logarithmic. I mean, this thing has been shooting to the moon, and I'm willing to bet that number today is 25-30%. The Small emergency departments that are so small that they've got one doc, probably don't need a mid-level sort of thing. That's fine. They've got what they need, a doctor. But I don't know any places these days, and the academic places particularly, that are not using mid-levels at a very high level. And certainly from a med-legal situation, over the last couple of years, I've watched these mid-level cases coming in, not only to our group, but in my own medical legal practice, and it is a significant part of the medical legal action at this time. Yeah, my sense is that these cases are disproportionately increasing, and they all involve supervision. It's all about what the doctor did or did not do in their relationship with a mid-level who is seeing a patient where there was a screw-up. Let me tell you, at any medical group right now or any medical meeting, if you want to fight on your hands, just mention that you think that the current levels of supervision are inadequate. People are debating this issue all over the country. The college is going to have to come down somewhere on what constitutes reasonable supervision. Particularly, it's going to have to come down when we talk about reasonable reimbursement. Because if you're charging the 100% rate and you're not giving some physical contact, visual contact with that patient, I think you're on tenuous grounds when the feds audit the charts. Well, Mike presented a case, cut to the chase, a very screwed up younger woman with multiple social issues who came back to the emergency department several times and ultimately had a bad stroke. She was coming back with these neurologic complaints of dizziness and headache and those kinds of things and was seen by the mid-levels and the mid-levels drew some blood. And one of the things that occurred in that is that nobody noticed that she had a 1.2 million platelet count, which was basically the cause of her hyperviscosity syndrome, which ultimately precipitated her problem. And then they got into this pissing match in terms of who said what. The PA 
said, I discussed the case with the doctor. The doctor said, I don't recall. Yes, my name is on the chart, but I don't recall discussing the case with the PA. And they just went back and forth, back and forth. This is the ultimate in cowardice. It's like when you have a resident. If you have a resident, I'm sorry, doctor, you're in charge of the case. When they're called a physician assistant and you sign the chart, you got to eat what went on. The smart doc would in some way type or put on somewhere on that record, saw the case with PA so-and-so or the PA dictates that case scene with Dr. So-and-so. We decided to do this. The problem is you can't have your cake and eat it too. If you're going to have a physician assistant and you're going to have some remuneration with these cases, you got to step up to the plate and take responsibility. That was an act of cowardice on their part, not to say, you know what, I am in charge of the case. In evaluating this case, as all of us participated, you'll remember that we brought up the issue of when they bill with your number, your provider number, you're pretty much involved in this case. I think it's prudent And I think we decided in the discussion that it was prudent that patients leave the department, that somebody be responsible for looking at the diagnostic testing, documenting clinical impressions. A physician assistant does not take the place of a physician on complex cases. The role of the PA can be a difficult one and certainly a difficult balancing act because certain doctors want certain levels of supervision. But to think that there's no level of supervision is a serious mistake. Well, John Rockwood, the PA on the tape, made the point that he works with many doctors, and some doctors are very approachable regarding cases and others are not. And they want kind of no parts of it. You're on your own. Go do your thing. And obviously, that must be a very difficult circumstance to work under when you have all of these different doctors' expectations. In addition, we know that some doctors order lots of tests, some doctors order little tests kind of thing. How does a PA basically resolve all of this when they're working with different doctors every day? Well, what's going to happen is at some point in time, we're going to have to come to karma with supervision. And it's better be sooner than later because they'll continue to have medical legal problems if we don't know who's in charge of the case. You'll remember, Rick, by the way, that we started to talk in this issue, and in the April issue, about Jillick v. Stockson. This is a Michigan appellate court case. This isn't at the trial level. This goes all the way to the appellate court, where the appellate court ruled that guidelines of a professional society promulgated by this society could be considered on their own a standard of care in a malpractice case. Basically, they allow that the standards could be read to the jury and the jury could take that in as evidence of what should be done in a case that comes to the emergency room. And every professional society has promulgated guidelines to some extent. And all I can say is we better be very careful what we write down and how we write it. Because even though we have put at the beginning of every one of these guidelines in ASEP, that it is not a standard of care. The appellate court in the state of Michigan decided to make them a standard of care. This has not been completely decided. It's going to the Michigan Supreme Court, but we're going to follow this case on Risk Management Monthly because I think the outcome of this case is going to have huge ramifications to the other 
23 board-certified specialties in the United States. Well, in the Emergency Medical Abstract database, we have articles where it is clear that guidelines are being used both to defend physicians' behavior, but to challenge it as well. Right. You can't have it both ways. It is either a standard of care or it isn't. You and I are used to the system that has existed in the country where standard of care is determined at the time of trial by expert witness testimony from the stand. If it's now going to be that these guidelines of the professional societies will be the guideline, will be the standard of which a jury uses to judge a physician's performance, we're going to have to relook at every one of those to make sure that it has room for physician judgment. Can I go back to two points regarding this PA business? First of all, it's been said by our lawyer colleagues that they need to follow the rules of the state with regards to the signing of charts. Well, we know in certain cases that those charts, only a small percentage need to be signed, and they do not need to be signed contemporaneously with the patient's care. You could sign a stack of these charts two weeks from now. Yes, if they're not signed contemporaneously, you better be charging the lower rate for the care that was given. Because what you're not doing then is giving online supervision and control of the case. And the insurance industry, and certainly the federal government, recognizes a decreased fee level that's expected to be paid if a physician is not immediately involved in the case. The other point I wanted to bring up is people say, well, I'll present the case to the doctor and get his or her opinion. But the fact of the matter is that the cases are presented in such a way and framed in such a way that to reflect the belief of the PA. So that you're looking at a chart and it says all the things that you would expect a chart to say for a strep throat because they created it that way. But the fact of the matter is it wasn't a strep throat. It was a Lemire syndrome kind of thing or something to that effect. So the presentation by the PA is not necessarily going to be brutally objective. There's no question that when you and I walk into the room, the gestalt of the patient in front of us is worth the thousand words. We do have a background, residency training, all these other things that are brought to the table that sometimes we are worth our money. Not every time, but there's no question that physician input can change the outcome of a case. Two other cases were discussed. One of them had to do with a sexually active 25-year-old male who presented with pain in a testicle and was misdiagnosed as epididymitis. That was worth a half a million bucks, Rick. And the question is, how much would you give to have one of your testicles taken, I guess? I'd give one of my testicles for half a million dollars in a heartbeat. Yeah, well, that's because you don't have any use for them anymore. This guy is 25. In any event, we wanted to point out that testicular torsion, 10% of people with testicular torsion are above the age of 21 because they are not 14, 15, or 16, do not think that it cannot be testicular torsion. The second case was one that has much broader implications for the department. This was a Georgia decision where $1.7 million was awarded in a case involving failure to contact the parents when a strep culture in their child was found to be positive. Shortly after that, the child developed rheumatic fever with rheumatic heart disease with significant complications. The emergency department did receive the culture results and nobody did anything with it. 
why would you ask for a study or do a test you weren't going to do something with? And $1.7 million later, that department's asking those questions of themselves. There you go. Okay, finally, May 2011, our interview with Mike Ritter, who reported on the American Society for Health Risk Management meeting that he attended in Tampa. He's a physician with the St. Joseph system in Orange. They've got, I think, about 14 hospitals. Mike, to boot, this is cool, is the 2011 Physician of the Year as voted by the Orange County Medical Society. Congratulations, Mike. One of the reasons he got interested in risk management was a tour that he had through the San Onofre Power Plant and was very impressed by all of the safety policies and procedures that they had in place. He also recommended the book, The Checklist Manifesto, How to Get Things Done Right by Atul Gawande, who's a surgeon at Brigham and Women's and a staff writer for the New York Times. The first thing that he got into was some of the Amtala stuff that was lectured on at that meeting. Yes, he pointed out to us, just a little reminder, that Amtala, which we have followed since 1985, since its beginning, really, is a law focusing on hospital behavior and not specifically that of the emergency physician. They're concerned with who's seen. They're also concerned with on-call physicians. But the emergency physician is really not the point of EMTALA actions. Should be pointed out, however, that EMTALA specifically says an EMTALA action is a federal action. It in no way precludes the injured party from bringing a standard malpractice action under current state laws. So you can have both an EMTALA action and a regular, plain old-fashioned malpractice case going. The plaintiffs like this Because if the adjudicator finds that there's been an Amtala action, that information can be released to the jury in the underlying malpractice case. And what's the tendency? Well, the feds thought they were guilty. Mm -hmm. They probably are guilty. And you ought to pay some more money on this thing. There are several other comments about the Amtala question, and that is delays in triage are now starting to be brought as Amtala cases. This is care delayed is care denied sort of projection and what they're saying is well you didn't really deny them care but by virtue of the fact that they had to sit there for hours you sent the message that you were denying care so keep that in mind that delays in triage can be considered mtala violations and we need to keep this in mind there were a couple of other cases that needed to be commented upon and that had to do transfer by car to another hospital Now, in truth, all of us do this. I've certainly sent people from the emergency department, had their family take them to the University of Michigan Hospital because they had a retinal detachment. What were they going to get from a ride in an ambulance? No different hospital, same location, everything else. But if something goes wrong, there are those cases which have been brought that say that this is an EMTALA violation. Yes, if you redirect to another hospital and the family goes to another hospital because the patient appears to be in more pain or something to that effect, and then they get into the fact that there was no notice and agreement to accept the patient and transfer and all of those technicalities come into play. Yeah. 
Yeah, I don't have much of a sense of humor about this. I think that the government is, again, trying to practice medicine. It's not even good at governing, and I don't know why it thinks it can do that. But this is an area which is going to have to be more clearly defined. He also extrapolated it to the redirection and diversion of ambulances. I know that. And under some of the original MTALA cases, it was determined that if you are in the ambulance coming to Hospital A, you have come to Hospital A. And so you then deserve a screening evaluation at Hospital A. Now, I think that that's a little bit ridiculous. Yes. If you have to go five more minutes to another hospital that may have a cath lab, or let's say it's a trauma case where you're a small hospital and there's a big one 10 more minutes down the road that may save your life, that seems ridiculous to me. All I can say is <laughs> it's the government. He brought out the Medicare Part B audits that are going on, looking at medical records that are virtually identical with each other, the macro system, ah, the electronic medical record. Yes. So they're concerned that these records may be easily being generated by a push of a button kind of thing, and they're being viewed as potentially problematic. Let's stop for one second. Every other specialty has templated responses which they use. If you listen to the radiologists as they dictate, what they say is case number so-and-so, chest x-ray, form A or form B, and then they will do their additions. Form A means to type out the usual and customary report which says lungs clear, no this, no that. We're not the only specialty that's involved in this. But just understand that everybody in the federal government is starting to realize this is just templated crap. Then he went into some of the benchmarks from the professional liability review that occurred there. 119 health systems, 1,500 hospitals, 125,000 hospital beds. They've generated some data. Some of it relates to emergency medicine. ER claims represented 11% of claims and costs. They also point out that in the U.S. there is 4.1 claims filed for every 100,000 ER visits. That's about one per 25,000 visits. Yeah. In 2009, the average settlement was $186,000, which translates to 670 per ER visit. But that's on the hospital side. That is not on the doctor's side. Exactly. And that's the settlement. That doesn't tell you where the big lump of money is, which is the allocated loss adjustment, which is what you paid your attorneys, your accountants, the well-wishers and fund seekers who hang around all of these things charging money. So it understates the amount of cash which goes into each case. You also pointed out that a third of all ER claims only names the hospital. I found that to be striking. With regards to the causes of claims, MIs are still at the top of the list. 24% of all dollars are still going out for for missed MIs. Let me explain why that third goes to just the hospital. It's not hard to understand, Rick, because if you've got a big metropolitan hospital that employs physicians, Mm -hmm, when you've named the hospital... You've named all of their direct agents and employees, which happen to be the doctors in that case. He pointed out that of these missed MIs, 80% of missed MIs are 30 to 50-year-old women who are smokers. I think that the old days when you and I were in med school that we thought this was a man's disease, just abandon that. It's now equal. They may have slightly different symptoms when they come in, but women have caught up to men in everything. There's going to be equal diseases 
and that's it. And by God, they achieved it. By the way, their smoking has now gone beyond that of men. And if you actually look in the teens and early 20s, almost twice as many women are significant smokers as men. He says the most common misdiagnosis is a typical chest pain. That's what's written down, a typical chest pain, right. which I don't even <clears throat> think is a diagnosis. I mean, the opposite must be typical chest pain. No, don't, <laughs> don't see that put down there. But yeah. in, in any case, that is Michael's review. And in any case, that is a review of the last 12 issues of Risk Management Monthly. We appreciate your forbearance. We welcome your comments. We look to talking with you next month, which I think is going to be a very interesting issue. I think we're going to be talking with a plaintiff's attorney. Well, since we're ending up another season of Risk Management Monthly, we'd like to just say keep the cards and letters coming. We'd like to hear from you. We want your cases, your problems, things that are bugging you. If it's troubling you, it's troubling somebody else. And we look forward in this year to meeting your needs. So this is Greg. And Rick. Saying bye-bye for another year of Risk Management Monthly.